If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The following podcast contains explicit language. I was hired to kill white boy Rick in the late 80s. Yeah, he came for me, tried to kill me on out of drive out of drive in Dickerson and we were in a Corvette convertible and we were sitting at a stoplight when they pulled up and stopped we pulled up on the side of them I saw a van I was looking I was in the passenger seat we had the music up pretty loud and I happened to glance over my shoulder God willing I saw the slide door on the van opening And I told my buddy, I said, pull off. And he didn't hear me. And I reached my leg over the thing and I pushed on the gas and we went through the red light. And shoo, he was gone. <laughs> and that's when the shots rang out. From WDIV and Grand Media, this is Shattered, the White Boy Rick story. Chapter one, like father, like son. I'm Mort Krim. I'm Carmen Harlan. These are the stories breaking tonight. I'm Scott Bernstein. I'm a, a Detroit area journalist, author, and historian. As far back as 1985, Worshi, who has earned the nickname White Boy Rick, was hanging out with the Curry family. You know, one of my earliest memories as a kid was being with my parents, you know, on the floor maybe while they were doing their work watching the, the nightly news. I'd be playing with my, my action figures or my Tonka trucks. And then this almost comic book-like character was, was on the television news a lot. How does a 16- or 17-year-old kid, Richard Worshey Jr., how does he get connected to the Curry family? How did you know these people? From living in the neighborhood in Detroit. I met him. The Curry Boys were a East Side drug conglomerate led by Johnny Little Man Curry. For a short period, we were friends. I just remember being kind of drawn to it, interested that, you know, this guy was, at that time was maybe seven, eight years older than me and uh, was dominating the news headlines. In 1987, when Worshi was arrested for allegedly possessing eight kilos of cocaine... I didn't know a lot of the specifics of the case. I just knew that this was a white teenage drug dealer operating in a mostly black underworld. But I didn't really know who he was. I just was kind of interested by the, the, the lore. There's the lore of White Boy Rick, and then there's what really happened. I can remember things so vividly. It's like my mind is like, I guess it just stopped at 18, and I remember everything that happened up until then. If you are paying attention to the news in Detroit in the 80s, you might have thought Rick Worshey Jr. was a teenage drug boss, a kingpin, someone with his own cocaine empire. What he really was, was a teenager with a huge secret. A secret that if anyone ever found out about, well, it could cost him his life. If you ask people about Rick Worshi, they 
We don't know Rick Wershey. We're just asking people what they think about Richard Wershey's situation. Who is that? I don't even know about it. White boy Rick? Oh, white boy Rick. Oh, what about him? Do you know him? I mean, not personally. Yeah, do I know him? Yeah, I grew up doing it here. She didn't know. I you didn't know about white boy Rick? I was, he said 1980s. I was born in 91. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's sorry. 10 years before You're right. No. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so um, he, uh, he might pretty soon. A few months. It's been should. 30 years. Yeah, I think he should. It's about time. They used him. My heart goes out to him. It seems like he's in an unfortunate situation. My name is Kevin Dietz. I've been an investigative reporter for 25 years in the city of Detroit. One of the biggest stories I've ever covered is Rick's. Defender Kevin Dietz has the second part of his exclusive jailhouse interview with White Boy Rick. So at this point, after reporting probably like 100 TV stories about him, I think I know Rick pretty well. I've sat with him face to face for hours. We talk on the phone several times a week. You may start the conversation now. Hey, how you doing? Going on, buddy. Not much. What are you up to? Oh, nothing. Just called her for a minute. She's calling up here, so I told her she told me you called, so I'm going to call you and call her back in half an hour. It's like this with Rick. He listens to you. He's always asking, how are your kids, the family, the dog? What's going on with you? He's well-read. He stays up to date on current events. He likes to talk. It always surprises me how often he tells me stuff that's going on in the world that I haven't heard about yet. I mean, now I'm so happy what's going on there for the revitalization and that Ford just bought the train station that's been closed for so long. And Detroit's a great city. He comes across as a genuine person. You just like him. And then he tells you his story. And it's really, really hard to believe. He's 49 years old now. But when he was 14, he says he became one of the youngest ever police informants in American history. At the time, the FBI was working with the Detroit police on a drug task force. So Rick kind of worked for both of these agencies. So were you ever paid any money? How'd it work? Oh yeah, I was paid all the time they paid me. Sometimes I had to sign a receipt, sometimes I didn't. How much money are we talking about? Over the course of two years, I would say probably somewhere around 30000 bucks, maybe. And what did you give them for the $30,000? Information. So you were probably making more money than most kids that you, that you knew? Well, I was making more money than the adults that I knew. The job, it required late nights. So late... It was really hard for Rick to get up for school the next day. Sometimes I'd come home 2, 3 in the morning because they would want me to go to a club. And I just couldn't get up at 7 in the morning if I came home at 3. I mean, they weren't saying, oh, quit school, but they were saying, you know, we need you to do this. And I'd say, well, I got school tomorrow. And they said, so what? We still, you know, go down to this club for us. That's just the beginning. After the government didn't need Rick anymore, he switched jobs from a police informant to a cocaine dealer. And when he was 17, he got busted and sentenced to life in prison. I'm calling case number 87004902, the People versus Richard Worsey. This matters before the court for a motion hearing. 
He has served more time than any other nonviolent juvenile offender in the history of the state of Michigan. It's devastating for his mother, Darlene McCormick. He did deserve to go away for a while for what he did. It was wrong. Right is right and wrong is wrong, you know, but not for as long as he's been. It just doesn't seem right to me at all. I asked Alan Dershowitz, the famous criminal lawyer and academic, if Rick's sentence is fair or unjust. This is a case that cries out for resentencing, for time served, for release. He served far, far, far too much time already for what he was convicted of doing as a very young man. I've seen a couple of pictures of Rick from when he was really young. One of them, he's like six years old. He's wearing a Cub Scout uniform. He's got that yellow kerchief around his neck and a a patch of the American flag. Another one, he's clearly just finished a baseball game and he's laying on the couch. What's interesting to me, what really jumps out is all these photos. He's not, not smiling. He's just got like a straight face. He's almost expressionless. His most distinguishing characteristic was definitely his hair. It was moppy and blonde, sandy blonde, and it was a little long. It would hang over his ears on the side and almost cover his eyes in front. The Worshies lived on a street called Hampshire on the east side of Detroit. That's where Richard Worshie Sr. grew up. He wanted to raise his kids near their grandparents. So in 1969, Richard Sr. and his wife Darlene moved back to his old neighborhood with their daughter Dawn. Rick was born shortly after. People worked, people had their gardens. I mean, it it was beautiful. Everybody knew everyone's everyone's name. I mean, streetlights came on, time to go home. You know, it it was, you know, the good times, the good days. I am Rick's sister, Dawn Scott. My name is Dave Majkowski. Uh, Rick and I grew up uh, together. He grew up across the street from me. You know, he was, he was uh, business-oriented, motivated to make money, which was a little unusual for a kid that age. Like one of the instances, we go to a pet store out by my house, and he gets the idea that I get a couple mice and uh, raise them and sell them back to the pet store. You know, make a dime per mouse, you know, that's how his mind worked. Meanwhile, the pest store closed down, so I'm stuck with about 30 mice. But, uh, you know, that's how Rick kind of worked, you know, he'd like to make a buck if he could. His daddy lived over there side of the street, and his grandmama lived four or five houses down. Yeah, I knew Rick since he was about 11 or 12. Good kid. Just like any other. That's Rick's old neighbor, Abraham Curry. He is no relation to the Curry drug gang that you're going to hear so much about in this series. This, Mr. Curry says, all the neighborhood kids, including Rick, would hang out and play basketball with his son. He says Rick also used to get out the BB gun and go hunting for squirrels. Yeah, he bring them to me because <laughs> he know I, I eat wild game. Well, there's plenty of them in the neighborhood. Just BB gun like any other kid. In the 70s, a lot of people in the neighborhood still worked for the car company Chrysler, including Rick and Dawn's grandparents, Vera and Ray. 
My grandma was a legal secretary and my grandfather was a foreman. Both of them worked on mound but in different plants. Um, my grandfather had Parkinson's disease and this was before anyone knew what it was or it was very hard, very hard when he got sick. And you were really close with your grandparents, right? Really, my grandparents, I looked at as a mother and father. I mean, everybody asked me, you know, the, the first thing I'm going to do when I get out, I'm going to visit their grave. That'll be the first thing that I do. When Rick was five, his parents got divorced. His mom, Darlene, moved out to the suburbs. Rick and Don, they stayed in Detroit with their dad. Was he father of the year? No, he... There was a lot of times we were left, left unsupervised and my grandmother tried to do her best, but things didn't turn out so well, you know? By the early 1980s, the American auto industry was going belly up. Union jobs disappeared in a city where union jobs were everything. From 1978 to 1988, Detroit lost a third of its car manufacturing jobs in places where the formal economy dips, the informal economy takes over. Once again, crime historian Scott Bernstein. And Richard Worsley Sr. was the quintessential street hustler. His mind was moving a thousand miles an hour, always looking to cut corners, always looking to find an angle to play, someone that always had a get-rich-quick scheme that he was trying to put into motion, always looking for some type of leverage to, to use to, to, to get ahead. He tried to be a real good father, Kev. He was wonderful. He spent a lot of quality time with us. Every year for Christmas, our Christmas gift was $100 in a trip to Florida. He had a good heart. He had good intentions. Did he make all the right choices? Who does? I never got to meet Rick's dad. He died in 2014. But by all accounts, he was a real character. So much that actor Matthew McConaughey is portraying him in the upcoming film about Rick's life. Heart's in the right place, but just a, a man who was ill-equipped. Didn't do too much to get equipped to be a good father. Um, one of those fathers that, uh, um, you know, kind of wants to be best friends with their kids. And while that's a, a kind of a fun, good-hearted idea, that's not really a, a, a recipe for good parenting. My dad wasn't, by any means, was he, you know, Ward Cleaver or anything like that, but... You know, he, he always tried to teach from wrong, and, and he was a businessman. Oh, he's had tons of business. I mean, it, you don't have enough time probably to list. list Water purification, leather goods, shoes and boots, purses, the skateboard shop, the gun shop. Guns. They were Senior's bread and butter. He ran a gun shop downtown. He'd spend weekends selling at gun shows. Rick and Don would often go with him. When my dad would go to the gun shows when we were younger, we would go to a sporting goods store on like south of Six Mile on Van Dyke. And he would buy the whole box of BB guns and say, I paid for them, you guys give me back my money and pay for the table. And whatever you make over that, it's yours. So we learned young to sell things. We talked with federal investigators. They tell us Richard Worshey Sr. did sell weapons legally. He also was suspected of selling illegally out of his house and car. And he was someone who was known to be able to really get you anything you needed. You needed silencers, you needed grenades, you needed assault rifles, you needed handguns, you needed permits. Uh, he could get it all. Federal officials probably could have busted him, but instead 
They wanted to use him for information. Worshi Sr. had a good idea who the criminals in the neighborhood were. Federal investigators, they were willing to pay for the information. For Worshi Sr., it was another way to make an extra buck. He became an official informant. And became a very valuable commodity uh, in the federal government in helping them build gun cases. Did you know that your dad was working as an informant? No, no idea. Around this time, Rick is in the eighth grade. He decides to leave Detroit and try living with his mom and stepdad in the suburb of Fraser. And part of that was, I think, getting him away from the city that was in the final stages of decay. And uh, he really thrived out there. To be honest, like, from 12 to 13 was probably the best, one of the best years of my life, you know? It was like going to a different world, you know? I moved from the inner city to, to the suburbs, and I met my first girlfriend, and, you know, uh, her family treated me so good, and it was just a different atmosphere, you know what I mean? It's, um, it, it was like you went from the inner city and you'd go around and, you know, my friend's fathers would be smoking weed or drinking beer or this or that, and then i go out there and this is my, my first girlfriend ever and her parents are worried about me doing my homework. My mom always thought he was great, said you're here to do homework and homework only, and he listened and we did and we got ourselves through school together. Michelle McDonald was Rick's childhood sweetheart. Just totally different world. It was a world that I had never got to experience until then. We went up to Stroh's and got ice cream all the time, and we would go play Pac-Man at the local, you know, bike up to the little local party store. And it was a very safe, very safe. Leaving there was probably the hardest thing that I ever had to do. Why did you come back? My mom's husband uh, and me didn't get along. He used to hit my mom, and me and him had some problems, and uh, I was up north deer hunting, and he threw all my stuff out of the house. So when it was time to go to high school, Rick headed back to his dad's house on Hampshire Street in Detroit. He was someone that, as he got into early adolescence, the city and you know where the city was and what was happening with the economy all kind of caught up and engulfed the Worshi family in that kind of tornado of terror that was that was taking over large swaths of Detroit. And it was like, survive by any means necessary. By 1984, Richard Worshi Sr. was informing on suspected criminals in Detroit, and he was getting paid for it. But sometimes, in addition to cash, he might ask federal agents for favors. You know, little things like fixing traffic tickets. But one favor... It was much more personal. My dad had reached out to the FBI for some help with my sister uh, because she became addicted to drugs. We asked Dawn about her drug use at the time. She did not want to talk about it. But according to Rick, his dad wanted to get the dealers who were selling to his daughter. The agents said they could help, but they wanted something in return. Names, addresses, any hard evidence against anyone in the neighborhood who was selling heroin or crack cocaine which by 1984 had become a huge problem all over the country. 
More than 25% of the American population has used illegal drugs. They have created a market so lucrative that some of the most vicious criminals and some otherwise respected citizens have joined forces to fill the demand. In 1984, I'm a teenager. I live in Oakland County, Michigan, a suburb just outside of Detroit. But really, it's a world away. Getting in trouble for me is throwing snowballs at cars in the winter, maybe sneaking into concerts in the summer. I never get caught. I never get in any real trouble. We're just teenagers doing dumb stuff. But in 1984, Rick Wershey Jr. is also a teenager doing dumb stuff. But in his neighborhood, just 25 miles away, dumb stuff is a whole lot more serious. Rick will tell you he was no angel as a kid. And so will John Simon, a retired beat cop from Rick's old neighborhood. And how many years did you work DPD? I died 35 years. He's in a nursing home now. He told us Rick was always getting into trouble. Be, uh, residential beanies, milkshoot beanies, and stuff here. It's hard to hear him, but he says everyone knew Rick and would say, Oh, yeah, you got to watch this kid. You got to watch this kid, this white kid here. He's always in, involved in, in stuff everybody knew. And but the only violent incident Rick talks about is when, as a teenager, Around that time, people in Rick's neighborhood and all over the country were discovering crack, a smokable form of cocaine. It could be sold in smaller quantities to more people. It was cheap, simple to produce, ready to use, and highly profitable. More than 25% of the American population has used illegal drugs. They have created a market so lucrative that some of the most vicious criminals and some otherwise respected citizens have joined forces to fill the demand. In 1984, powder cocaine is available on the street at an average of 55% purity for $100 per gram. Crack, on the other hand, is sold at 80% purity for about the same price. In Detroit, one rock of crack could be obtained for as little as $2.50. More people are doing drugs than ever before, and the crime rate is exploding. According to FBI crime stats from the time, Detroit had 581 homicides, the highest among the nation's top 10 cities. The U.S. government has committed the armed services and more than $200 million a year to the fight against drugs, but the enemies in this war have more money, the latest equipment, and millions of our own citizens supporting them. Despite those odds, the government thinks it can win the drug wars. The war on drugs had been underway since the Nixon administration, but by the 80s, that war had become incredibly devastating and violent. Life can be great, but not when you can't see it. Say yes to your life. And when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no. I think you can see why Nancy has been such a positive influence on all that we're trying to do. The job ahead of us is very clear. Nancy's personal crusade, like that of so many other wonderful individuals, should become our national crusade. As the federal government dedicated more time and more money to drug enforcement, the prison population, it skyrocketed with dealers and users alike. No matter how many people got locked up, the dealers, they continued to find ways to sell. In Wershey's neighborhood, it was the Curry brothers who owned the streets. I don't think in the 80s there was anyone more powerful in the city of Detroit than Johnny Curry. 
in the 80s, yeah. I had a lot of power, a lot of pull, a lot of connections too. It's Rick Jr.'s proximity to the Currys that really begins the making of White Boy Rick. Remember earlier we were getting into Rick Sr. becoming an informant? The Fed said they could help him with his daughter Dawn's drug problem, but they would need to know who all the drug dealers were in the neighborhood. If Richard Worshi Sr. snitched, they would send Dawn Worshi's drug dealer friends to prison. The only problem? Rick Sr. didn't really know much about the local dealers. He knew guns, not drugs. And as an illegal arms dealer, he didn't tend to ask many questions of his clients. So when the FBI stopped by the Worshi's house to ask Rick Sr. for information, he had no idea who the local drug dealers were. But his 14-year-old son, Rick Jr., did. He was listening from the other room and spoke up. And so what uh, What did the agents do at that time? Well, they, they showed me some pictures and asked me who this person was, who that person was. I basically identified them, and they said they would be in touch, and the relationship grew from there. It, it went into them sending me into houses to purchase drugs and stuff like that. He watched everything and everyone as he was riding his bike up and down Hampshire Street. The feds were listening intently as the 14-year-old kid explained who was running the streets. Rick says the reason he got involved in snitching was to save his sister from a drug problem. But he'll also admit he liked the money the feds were paying him. And they were paying him well. You know, and having a little money in my pocket, I could go buy whatever clothes I wanted. I could go to the hotel room, you know, 15 years old. You're getting the hotel room and you're banging chicks that are 21, 22 years old. I thought it was fun, you know? You look back, I look back on it and can't believe how how stupid I really was and, and, and how dangerous, you know, everything that I was doing. You have one minute left. I had friends every day growing up that, that were murdered. Pretty much every day down there, we knew someone who died. And it became like, that was like normal. Coming up this season. Nobody else could touch him in terms of information. He was a goldmine for information. One of the members of the task force commented to the other, if this kid dies, we're all fucked. She said, hey, you know, my dad can arrange to have flights of cocaine flown in. It was two houses from my grandparents where they pulled him over. And we saw, like, this whole thing unfold. What was it like when she came to see you in prison? Give me a minute. Today's episode was produced by Zach Rosen and me. It was edited and mixed by Zach Rosen. Tad Davis is our assistant producer. WDIV's executive producer of special projects is Ro Coppola. WDIV's news director is Kim Voet. My name is Kevin Dietz. Jerry Lemonu created original illustrations for each episode of this season. See them at whiteboyrick.show. If you like the podcast, consider writing a review for us in the Apple Podcast Store. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Shattered Podcast. We have a lot of people to thank for helping us make this show possible. The Worshi family, Jeremy Allen, Kenny Elshoff, Anastasia Klimovitz, Jamie K. Walters, Brandon Crawford, Jason Colthorpe, Terry Turpin Amato, Shira Heisler, Missy Dietz, Teresa Mangold, Sean Reck, Alan Frank, 
Eric Smith, the Michigan Department of Corrections, Maria Miller, Ben Bell, Vanessa Ogletree, John Pompeo, Jim Stanhope, Donna Harper, Dustin Block, Brian Brisky, Catherine Badalamente, Mike Katona, Jane Marshall, Emily Barr, Tim O'Shaughnessy, the Detroit Free Press, the Detroit News, the Associated Press, and Evan Hughes, who wrote an article for Atavist called The Trials of White Boy Rick. It's really good. Don't forget season one of Shattered, all about the missing Skelton Boys. It's available in this very feed. Thank you for listening.